just sort of pick up again where we left off. I don't want to assume that everybody has a working knowledge of the book of Acts and sort of where we even have been in the past few weeks. At the same time, I don't want to just, you know, go back over the same material. So let's just say that for the first time in history, uh, the, the, the church had sent out a team of people to go into a place where the message of Jesus had never gone before. It was the first time where they really intentionally made a decision to take the message of Christ. We talked about it, and we'll put the map up real quick, just to give everybody an idea of the context of what we're talking about. Again, you see where Jerusalem is. You see where some of these places that we're talking about is. Antioch, there's two Antiochs there, which is a little bit of an oddity. Anti the first Antioch in Syria, um, that Antioch was one of the great cities of the Roman Empire at the time, and uh, it was a, tr a strategic city where the Gentile, where a, a, a church of predominantly Gentile believers in Jesus had emerged to everybody's dismay and shock in a good way. And that, out of that group was sent a team that went to Cyprus. We talked about how Paul Barnabas and their assistant John Mark went to Cyprus, and in Cyprus they had some amazing things happen. We talked about the conversion of the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus, and what that meant. We talked about how um, they got to a point where they said, well, what are we going to do next? And Paul felt compelled that they were supposed to go into a place that, again, the message of Jesus had never gone. <clears throat> and he said, we need to go into what is known as the heart of Asia Minor. And you can kind of see the arrows that shows you where they headed into. We want to go inland. We're going to cross back over onto the mainland, and we're going to go into a very strategic place. That was the decision that they made. Uh, they wanted to push into the regions of, of Pamphylia, Pisidia. That is today modern-day Turkey. Um, although technically it was under Roman control, that region was very dangerous because, especially in the highlands and the passes, uh, there were a lot of uh, perils uh, that were um, often happening to people who made such travels. And so it was not an easy thing they proposed. And we read about this in verse 13, just pick right up. It says that Paul and his companions then left Paphos, you can see it, by ship for Pamphylia, landing at the port town of Perga. And again, I want to just plant these things in real geographical places that we can note because the Bible is talking about real things. And then it says John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We talked about this and why he went back and speculated on some things. But basically, Paul and Barnabas left the Cyprus and crossed the Mediterranean, arrived at Perga, this steamy, walled city a few miles off the Mediterranean coast. And from there, they would have been able to see the barrier that awaited them. Um, they could see the mountain ranges and, of course, the plains leading up to it. And they anticipated what would go beyond those mountain ranges. And um, we know that they decided that they were going to make what was clearly not going to be an easy journey. And in fact, it was a perilous one. But if successful, it would allow them to take the message of Jesus into places that were so strategic. Because Asia Minor was like a bridge between Europe, Rome, and also Asia with all of its trade routes, and then, of course, leading down south, the Middle East. It was just a strategic place. And so to take the message of Jesus there would have been a very big, big deal, but it was going to be a costly, dangerous trip. And we know that they decided to go, and so they would have made their way through some amazing country. Again, we're on this side of the world. We often don't appreciate some of the beauties in the other parts of the world, but one of the places we know they would have passed on their way to Antioch of Pisidia would have been one of the great lakes in the, in the, in the world, at least... By some people's account, it's one of the most beautiful ones, Lake Igridir. And that lake um, was something we know they would have passed by. You can see some of it has just an astounding beauty to it. They'll flip that through. You'll see it. It's pretty impressive, the beauty, the, the rugged but blues that are there in these mountains. And uh, they would have gone past that and made their way ultimately to Antioch of Pisidia. And 
again, that had been a city, I don't want to go too much into details, but just because it's probably helpful, it was founded by Caesar Augustus. It was used as a, a Roman colony. Rome had this um, practice of planting cities in areas that were strategic, and they did that to help keep the peace and keep, essentially, their ability to control the region. And this was one of those cities that had been planted. And we know that it was made up of a variety of different types of people. There were Romans there. There were um, lots of local people, local population. There were Greeks. There were even some Jewish settlers who had done what Jewish settlers would do wherever they went as they were scattered abroad. They had started their own community of believers, which they called a synagogue. And a synagogue um, was a community that worshiped God. Uh, they um, did it on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. And every time Paul and Barnabas, and this would become a practice for them, because every time they would go into a city, the first thing they would look for was a synagogue, because it was an opportunity to share the, their faith and to talk about the message of Jesus in an environment where people would have understood, at least theoretically, what was being proposed. And so they, it tended to be their starting point, and they would share this message of Messiah. We read in verse 15, look at it, it says that, after the usual reading, so they go to the synagogue service, and after the usual readings from the books of Moses and the prophets, because again, what would happen is there would be the readings of the scripture, a lot like what we're doing now, tradition is rooted, and then there would come a commentary, oftentimes guests who were coming in, who were recognized in some way as maybe perhaps having something to share and contribute, would be given the privilege of being able to share a commentary around the readings. This was the case. They recognized that Barnabas and, Jew um, and Paul were Jewish, and therefore, and we know that they both were, and that Paul had actually been a Pharisee, which was not uh, something to be taken lightly. Whether he told them that or not, we don't know. But one thing is clear, that, that he was not just anyone. He had a far more than just a, a working knowledge of the, of the scriptures. He was an expert in Judaism. He was an expert in the teachings of the scriptures. He had been trained at the, at the highest levels in Jerusalem, under the feet of, we were told, Gamaliel, the most prominent teacher of the day, or at least one of them. He had been a premier leader 15 years earlier, a fierce opponent of Jesus. We talked about it. And now here, he has been given this opportunity to share the message of Messiah. And we were told that he does so with a great degree of vigor. It says here that he, he in charge of the service, they, opened, they invited them, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. So Paul stood up, kind of see it in our mind's eye, lifted up his hand to quiet them, and perhaps there was a bit of a rumbling, and he started speaking. He said, men of Israel, and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen to me. Now, in initially, uh, if you would have heard this, when he, had, he addresses this audience, now, if you were sitting, standing at the place where he would have been standing, whether it was lifted up or not, he would have been looking out at the congregation. What he would have seen was something worth noting. In, in the synagogue, he would have seen initially his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews who had gathered together, who believed in the one true living God and were well-trained in the scriptures. They would have been in the front rows. Along with them, there would have been some Gentiles who had non-Jewish people from backgrounds, but who had fully converted to the Jewish faith. So they were actually no longer even considered Gentiles. They were actually considered Jewish. They had made a complete uh, um, commitment, even if they, if they were men, to the point where they were circumcised and had agreed to commit to the various details of the ceremonial as well as the moral law of Moses. It was an intense commitment that a lot of people were afraid to make for obvious reasons and were reluctant to do so. 
It was costly. It was, in some cases, quite painful. But, it just, but many had made that decision. So that would have been the group that he initially talks to. So, and, and, and then, but if you had looked behind in the, towards the back, you would have seen another group of people. They were called the God-fearers. That was a designation given to them. They were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who had decided that they were attracted deeply to the faith of Israel, to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they had come to appreciate the, the, the lack of moral ambiguity. They, they, were, they had been immersed in uh, idolatry and um, uh, ancestral worship, and they had come to a place of embracement of the teachings of the scripture, but they had not been willing to make the cultural jump. So they were reluctant to, to make the leap to basically no longer be, um, you know, sort of Gentiles, but at the same time wanted to attach themselves to, to the church. So they were, they were behind. What is unusual about Paul's greeting is it's not the, it's, an, it's kind of, a, it would have caught people off guard. Not the first part, because the first part he says, look, when he, when he says to them, he says, men of Israel. Now initially, there's nothing unusual there. That makes total sense. But it would have been the next thing that would have caught everybody's attention. Because what he doesn't, he doesn't just stop there. He says, and you, and you God-fearing Gentiles. Now that, didn't normally happen. People did not address them directly like that. And he began to talk to them in a different way, and it got everybody's attention pretty quickly. And we're told that something else happens, right? And again, what he begins to do, and I didn't put this all in there, but if you were to look at the 13th chapter, because it's extensive, he starts to go into this history of, of the nation of Israel and God's dealing with his people. And he starts talking about how God's been working through the prophets and then and he starts tracing things, the movement of God through the ages and through the, how God's kept his promises. And then he gets to the point where, which interestingly enough, if you read what Paul says and what he declares, it's very similar, certainly not dissimilar, to the message that was given by Stephen in Acts 7. Remember, Saul had been there while they stoned Stephen to death because of what he said. Stephen never got to totally finish his message Saul had been extremely compliant. Even though he had never thrown a rock, he was watching the garments, very pleased at the outcome, clearly approving of it. And, and uh, now, ironically, 15 years later, he is doing the very thing that Stephen was doing that day. And now he has become an advocate of the message of Messiah Jesus. And it's an astonishing moment if you think about it. He starts tracing the history. He starts getting to the point where he says, look, let me talk to you about what God has done. Look what he says in verse 32. He says, and he's coming to a conclusion. He says, and now we are here, look what he says, to bring you the good news. That's what he called the message of Jesus. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the hope that's entailed. He says, this is a promise. He's talking firstly to his community here. He says, this is a promise that was made to our ancestors. And God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising Jesus. And then he says, now this is anchored in the scriptures. He says, look, you all know the scripture. This is anchored in the scriptures. He says, this is what the second psalm says about Jesus. He says, it, it not only had a direct meaning, but it had a meaning of what was yet to come. And he says, it was about him, the Messiah. He says, he said, you are my son. Today I have become your father. For God had promised to raise him from the dead, not leaving him to rot in the grave. And he said, look, I will give you the sacred blessings I promised to David. And then he goes on to say, and there's another psalm in the scripture. Again, he's talking to them. And he says, that explains it even more thoroughly. He says, look, you remember this? He says, you will not allow your holy one to rot in the grave. And then he goes on to say this. This is not a reference to David. For after David had done the will of God in his own generation, which is a great mission statement, by the way, to be faithful in our generation. 
He died and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. No, Paul says, this was not a reference to David. It was more of a reference to someone else, someone whom God raised and whose body did not decay. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is the forgiveness for your sins and that everyone who believes in him is declared right with God. And then he says something that would have struck all of them as an extremely controversial statement because he then goes on to say, this is something the law of Moses could never do. Whoa. Why that would have been a big deal? Because they, what he was basically saying is all the law of Moses could do is expose the need and anticipate its solution, but it could never solve it. God had to act in his own right by coming one of, one of us dying in our place to fully fulfill everything that he had wanted to do in the human economy. It was a powerful statement. He says, one can lead us to something, but it can't get us there. It was meant to lead us to Jesus, he says, God's only begotten son who gives himself for us as a ransom, doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. God has done it. And in giving his life away, he has secured the possibility for us to have life, not only here, but in the life which is to come. He is God's gift to whoever will receive it. Receive it. it was a powerful, passionate declaration of the message of Jesus. And as you look at it, you go, wow, that's intense. Now, we know that the, there was a reaction to this. In fact, what we're told, and this must have been very encouraging to Paul and Barnabas, because we read this, it says that Paul and Barnabas, as they left the synagogue that, that day, the people begged them to speak um, again about these things next week. Hey, would you guys come back here next week and talk more about this in the service again? We would love to hear more of this. This is very compelling and interesting. A lot of people were talking about it, but we know what happens next. And again, I'm summarizing this, but essentially what happens is the leaders start to feel threatened by the implications of the gospel. They're not sure they want to embrace it. It's concerning. It's disconcerting. It means a complete reordering of some of the assumptions that they've been making. And by the time that we know that the Sabbath comes, there's actually been an organized opposition that has begun to set itself up to respond to these controversial statements being made, which would change the order of, of the entire process. Look what it says here in verse 44. It says that the following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But it says in verse 45, but when some of the Jewish leaders, this is particularly some of the community, saw that the crowds, remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jewish themselves. When they saw that the crowds were, were growing in such enormous ways, it says in this case, they were jealous. So what happened is they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he had said. Their response was, and it, it, even though it must have disturbed Paul, it, I don't think he missed, I think he understood it because he used to do it himself. Remember? He was a fierce despiser of the way of Jesus. And so even though a part of him would have been upset as they are hectoring him, trying to undermine him, trying to preclude his ability to present the message of Jesus, arguing with him at every point, every step of the way, um, trying to take, to, to take his credibility away, there's a part of him that understood. He was almost like I can hear him saying, I know what you, why you guys are doing this because I was just like you. I get it. But you're still missing the point. And then he goes on to finish it up. He says this in verse 46. He says, then Paul and Barnabas spoke out even more boldly, and they declared, listen, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you, our Jewish brethren. Basically, that's what he's saying. But since you have rejected it, you don't want it in this, in this place. You've already judged yourselves unworthy. If that's your decision, 
then we're going to take this message to, pe to where people are open to it. And he says to the Gentiles, he says, because the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. And then it says, look at the contrast. One group's angry and jealous. The other group, in this case, they were glad and they thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers, which is the Bible's way of saying there were, there were a number of people who chose to receive Christ. Powerful moment. Now, for me, that's, that's what happens. Here's how I would like us to think about playing this out. Because, you know, from, again, we always talk about this, how we've, our pattern has been to look at the text, to look at what happened, sit with it, understand it. But honestly, for me, the goal is for all of us, no matter where we are, to consider applying this to our own lives, certainly with God. So no matter how long we've been following the Lord, or maybe some of us who aren't even quite there yet, we are, though, feeling compelled to listen. Wherever we are, I think God has something to say to us because it is no coincidence we are here in his house. There is no coincidence. All things are for a purpose, certainly in Christ. One of the things I want to suggest, and I'm just going to put it out there, I'm calling these three pushes, all right? The first thing I want to say is that the Lord wants us to create, courageously share his good news. And um, I want to say that even in potentially hostile environments, now, I get it. Um, it's hard to say that any place in America is a hostile environment when you actually look at what one Paul was going to go through with Barnabas, what the early church went through in terms of persecution, what they would go through about a, you know, 200-some years after that as they were being literally thrown into the Colosseum, devoured for entertainment. Um, there are people in other parts of the world that do not have the privilege that we have right now to even gather in his name, yet alone to publicly proclaim him. It is illegal, and Kay can suffer the loss of not only their personal well-being, but all the things that they have in this life. The people they love are at stake. There are many heroes whose names we will never know who love and follow Christ in ways that only Jesus sees. Having said that, there are going to be times, and here's my challenge for all of us, that there are going to be times when the Lord is going to ask some of us to push beyond our fears, and he's going to ask us to share our love for him in ways that can only be described as courageous, not insensitively or harshly, um, certainly not in a way that is uh, overly condescending or judgmental, and even, if the Lord give us grace here, defensive. But there are going to be times when the Lord is going to require the people who claim to love him to do more than simply seek. And I say, don't say this in a way to demean it, but more than just to live it out. At some point, we are going to have to be willing to speak out our love for the Lord. And that means that there are going to come moments where, and I know that some of us, I was talking to a young man, uh, a couple of months ago, it just came up in the conversation. He came up to me almost in, almost in tears. Not, not, but his eyes were watering. And he said to me, I feel like the Lord wants me to speak up, but I'm afraid because I'm in an environment that I work in, in the field that I'm in. It's, 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 it's not conducive to sharing or to even talking about Christ. And in fact, he says, some cases it, it will, it will in, get someone to either ostracize or I may even have some punitive scenario occur where I'm actually passed over. He goes, I want to share, I want to express my love, but honestly, I'm afraid. And I, 
I just tried to listen because I, I said, I get it. I go, you know what, we live in a culture right now where there's a lot of misinformation about Jesus, and we do have to do what I'm about to say. We have to work hard at, at discerning the culture where we, where we work and where we uh, live, and we have to seek to be wise in the way in which we convey our love for Christ. Uh, for example, I'm going to use the example here. Look at what Paul does. He is going to do this time and time again. Just hear me out. Sit with it. Think about it. To, the, to his Jewish uh, fellow Jewish you know, members of Judaism, he will, he will always use this, the scriptures as an anchor point. So he has an assumption about their familiarity with the, the words of the, of the scriptures. He can pull back into the Psalms. He can pull back into references. He makes the case that there's a continuous movement of God that has to do with everything that, that the old covenant, as, he, as we call it now, anticipates, right? He talks about how all those sacrifices, the lamb, why do you think those things were instituted? They were ultimately to get us to the place where the ultimate lamb of God was giving his life away as the ultimate covering for our sins, paving a way through the own bridge of God that we might have life in his name, that he might give us life both now and yet to come. That was the message. He, but he would anchor it in a continuous movement of God, that this is the promise of God revealed. That's how he would approach his, his you know, fellow Jews. When he would talk to the God-fearers in the back a lot of times, what he would start getting into, when he, would, he, would start, he would emphasize something different. What he would emphasize, he would say, look, th this means that you do not have to go by simply submitting to these laws. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to get stuck in the ceremonial laws. He would make the case that God is doing a new thing even now, that all that the law anticipated is being fulfilled before your eyes, that you can come to Jesus where you are. Your faith is already in the living God. Come now. You don't have to cross over all these barriers that are more cultural to get there. And it was an interesting way of, and many times, they were the, that was the key entry point. But then he would also, you study it out, he would also talk to just Gentiles, period, who did not have a faith in God of Israel, and he would approach them even differently. He would talk to them. He would start quoting, as your modern poet, as, po as your poet said, he would start quoting what we would call secular language as a way of building bridges to get people thinking about God in a big picture, and then say, this God is moving in a new way. And it would, it would, it would, it would get people to think about the reality of, of what he was saying because he was speaking the language of what their world was. And that is a great thing for you and I to be thinking about because when we share the message of Jesus, and we'll need to do this if we love him, we need to be thoughtful about our environment. Actually talk about it, think about it, pray about it. How can I represent your heart appropriately in this environment? How can I create, because every environment's different. I might have some friends I need to talk to one way, and others, I have, you know, I have, I have a neighbor who I talk to in a very different way. And, and I'm, I'm trying to get, get where our people are at. And also, I need to be, we need to factor in, stay with me, you guys, we need to factor in other things, like what is, what is sort of the greater climate? Here, you know, we are in a world-class city. Um, we live in San Francisco. This is where I was born. This is where I was raised. This is my home. Uh, I, you know, I have a love for the city. But the, the way we represent Jesus here might be different than other places. Uh, we have a particularly skeptical environment where there is a lot of cynicism 
Um, there's a lot of reasons why we have to be thoughtful about the way we talk about him, even post things and what that means. But here's the deal. We cannot allow those things to get in the way of us ever talking about him. Because of the people, you hear me say, I'm going to keep saying it. Because of the people who claim to love him and follow him never talk about him, then who is going to know about him? Right? And, and not only that, there's a way in which we can, when you have access with someone who they've come to watch and like you, that you could talk about it in ways that, again, are sensitive, thoughtful, but at least courageous in their own way. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask some of us by faith to push into sharing his good news with others. It, and then that leads to the second piece, for me anyway, which is this, that there are gonna be times where the Lord is also gonna call us to, t- to push into a, g- a journey, to stretch us, push us beyond our comfort zones. I, I mean, for Paul and Barnabas, think about it, what did it involve? It involved a geographical risk where they were pushing into a region, a territory, a place that was going to be a little bit dangerous. And then when they got there, they were going to have some dangers. If, how should they talk about him? And it, what could happen to them? And they had no way to protect themselves. And so they, they knew what was coming. And I thought, you know, Lord, okay, I get it. Most of us here, you're not calling us into geographical journeys. You might at some point call some of us there. But for the most part, I think this is how I heard it for me and perhaps it will, it will resonate, is I think the Lord is clearly calling some of us at certain stages in our lives, and maybe some of us right now are in a transitional place. For me, I know I certainly am, because what I've been thinking about it a lot, you know, the, the end of one season and the beginning of another doesn't seem like much difference. But as things move along, you know you're in a new one. And I think in these transitional places, we often reevaluate things. Hear me out when I'm saying this. I, I'm asking this question. Are there some things that the Lord is asking some of us to risk for him? Is there a journey that he is asking, a journey of faith that he is asking some of us to make, pushing into regions, perhaps regions of unfamiliarity and discomfort? Maybe those things are internal. I'm thinking of an internal journey, which is interesting to me because sharing him, I'm basically advocating that we... We are external with our faith in some way, even modest ways. Perhaps, like I said, just something underneath the photo, something that tips the hand that we love him, okay? But now I'm saying that a lot of times the journey the Lord is asking us to take simultaneously is an inward journey, that he's calling us in the interior places as men and as women, that God is asking us to to think about what he's trying to establish in our lives at this time. This applies to wherever we are, young, in the middle of our life, in our advancing years, wherever we are, God has new things to move us into. Sometimes it is so intense, those feelings, that we, we do ourselves and the people we love an injustice if we do not stop, make time, carve out time to reflect, to prayerfully consider, and to ask others to speak into our life because the place that we're in is so critical that we need to be hearing from God, whether it's just stay in the place that you're at, move forward into it, or listen for my voice. I'm trying to get at things. There are, there's oftentimes the Lord is trying to establish, and this goes back to the song we shared leading into this message, new things. There are some things he's wanting to die out, but out of that death comes life. That is the way of the gospel. It's the way the Lord works in our lives. And what are those new things God's calling us into? By the way, in my opinion as well, this is one of the best times of the year that we're heading into to do this. Because it, everything about heading into the holidays, the holy days, invites us, if I can use that way, into a journey. 
It invites us to celebrate the coming of Christ and all that that means. And think about it. And then it leads us naturally into a new year. That's how we mark it. And that new year presents a new opportunity. But along the way, the God of new things, the God who came to us to do a new thing, invites us to explore our gifts, to think about the new things he wants to do in us. Now, here's the key. That's going to involve us pushing into something else. It's the third and final piece that I'm going to just put on the board, and that it is this. It's going to involve others. It's going to involve pushing into community. So do you see it? Three pushes. One, may, the, may we be willing to push beyond our fear and share the good news. May we be willing to make a journey, spiritually speaking, that takes us into the interior places, that God can get at stuff that's been there for a long time, begin to break us free of stuff, pull us into other places. And then third, he wants to push us into community. I mean in a good way, because it's in community. Remember, Paul does not go alone. How does he go? With Barnabas. He has a partner. When Jesus starts his movement, he starts with a small group. We don't just say, oh, get in a small group for not a reason, because that's what the Lord, the master, did. He set it up that way. He's, and then out of that small group, there were other pockets, people that had natural connection points. That's where a lot of the growth took place. And that's where, in Christ, a lot of our real life flows. It's, I call it mediated grace. God moves through people. We bless one another. We grow. We sharpen one another. That's the way of the Lord. That's why we talk about the value of having, getting involved in a ministry or getting part of a small group. Making time, you know, in a very, okay, how can I say it? We live at a time in history where there's a lot of non-personal communication going on. And, <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and, what, and it's because there's so much, you know, technology now that sort of distances us from people. Even when we maybe have something like a FaceTime or something, it's still not the same. In fact, most of our stuff is quick. It's, it's designed to just communicate in short, short, you know, kind of, you know, blurbs and, and just different ways of connecting than what our generations past would have done. I'm saying that because everything about it leads us to, to be depersonalized at some level. And one of the challenges that makes even gathering, like what we're doing right now, even more important is because that is the way that our culture is. So it makes content, something different about being able to look at someone in the eye, share with a trust that, that cannot be conveyed simply through a written word, that there's something about you know, opening up our heart with some degree of vulnerability and praying for one another, even in an appropriate way, agreeing with one another. You know, sometimes I'm in a, I'm in a group in a, and we'll just be in a coffee shop in a public place, and it's one of the ways that we get to, to, to share Jesus. And it, it might be something subtle, something small, but we'll just get together, and, and, and we'll just kind of like put our arms on one another, and we'll, we'll just each one take a turn praying for one another. And we try to do it appropriately, but we, it's, it's something that allows... And we've had a lot of conversations just come out of the fact... That, that we're just trying to do that in a way not that's obnoxious, not that's like trying to put anything in anybody's face at the same time. It's we love him, we love one another, we want to be public with our faith, and that's one of the ways that we do it. But, we, but it's more than that. It's about strengthening one another. It's about blessing one another. It's about encouraging one another to stay on the trail. And if we're starting to deviate off track, come on back. Some, we're not always strong. We're not always, and every one of us has weak points. I always say this, we all do. We need one another. This is a one another faith. It's not meant to be alone. When Jesus sent them out, the 70, he said, when you go out, he says, don't go by ones. Go by two by two. Never alone. Don't ever go alone. That's very interesting to me. 
It's a great truth. Now, I say all that because, again, what are the three, what we're saying? Lord, use us to push beyond our fears to share you, even as we're seeking to push inside so that we can live out what we say we believe. But Lord, push us into the interior places so that we can be honest about where we are and what you want to do in us this season of our life. And then Lord, push us into community because that's where a lot of our strength comes from. And, and we intentionally were thinking about this last thought when we selected the closing song. Because you know, a lot of times our closing songs are like a benediction. It's like a good word that's being given to summarize what we share, or at least to accent a point of it. It's a way of sort of sitting with it in an artistic fashion, listening for the voice of the Lord. Here's the deal. The song that we selected, is, the, the words themselves aren't in the handout, but the title is. It's called Never Say Never, and it has to do with, with this idea of don't let me go. And I thought of it in twofold. Sometimes, and some of us have known this feeling, you can have a friendship where some of us are really hurting, we're very weak, this has happened, and we need someone to believe in us, to pray with us, to stand with us, to be there for us, to not let us go. But I've also, when I was listening to this song, I can't ever, I always, I always think of it like, some of these moments where I've been feeling so weak, so discouraged, and I just say, Lord, I need you. Please don't let me go. And maybe, maybe in those moments, just saying, Lord, hold on to me, because I need courage right now. And, and sometimes maybe even when we failed him in ways that, that we just say, Lord, don't reject me. Don't let me go. I love you, even in my, like Peter, even, even though I have nothing to give you. Don't let me go. Okay. So after our time of giving, when we share the song, just kind of be sitting with it. Receive it. It's a good song. It's just, it'll, it'll, okay, let me pray. Lord, uh, I, I ask for you to bless our closing minutes. Uh, I thank you for this word because it's a privilege to represent your heart. Um, thank you. I pray that we would uh, receive this offering and to the best of our abilities, this closing song as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.